Welcome to Roll Call, the official podcast of the Columbia Heights Police Department. This is part two of our recording featuring Monty Franck, who has traveled around Minnesota and other parts of the country to share his presentation honoring Native Franck, a Native father's experience with his missing and murdered Indigenous daughter. Monty oversees emergency management with the Malax Band of Ojibwe Tribal Police Department and was kind enough to visit Columbia Heights City Hall for this recording. We encourage you to listen to the previous episode to hear Monty's story in full. This episode features the podcast team's follow-up conversation with him, and it resumes immediately after Monty finished telling his story. And just a quick note, some details and topics discussed in this episode may be disturbing to some listeners. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, How frequently do you tell that story? It's one of those things where, when I'm asked, I I don't seek this out. It's just when, like Chief Austin gets to hear a story with that one and asked, and I think that's what I'm hoping was would be my daughter's passion, is to tell the story while it's relevant, because I know someday it'll be another family story to tell, and um and now Nada's story can rest. What do you want to be the main takeaway from that story? What would you like to see uh, in our society to make this kind of story more rare? I will say that Minnesota has done some remarkable things since this time. On the federal level, for Indian country, Secretary Deb Holland, the first Native American Secretary of Interior, created under her authority through the Bureau of Indian Affairs Law Enforcement Services what's called the MMU, or Missing and Murdered Unit. And that's a nationwide unit now, and Minnesota was one of the first to have a special agent, Michael Potter, stationed here. Just about a month ago with the White House Tribal Summit, the Bureau of Indian Affairs and the FBI signed a mutual aid agreement now where they'll be sharing more information. So that's, that, is a, that is a nationwide efforts. So a lot of times when, when I have Native families who call me looking for resources, I refer them to that MMU unit because it's a nationwide and interconnected to Department of Justice and Bureau of Indian Affairs. In Minnesota, because again, we are unique to have Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan. The, she is the highest ranking elected Native, Native woman in the entire United States. And she knows of this epidemic also. And because of her and the, gov- and the governor, they have now created what is called the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relative Office. And now Juliet Rudy, who is also with St. Paul and retired with, with, with Ramsey County Sheriff's Office, is now overseeing that. So now we have two unique resources that I never had in my story that Minnesota has taken upon themselves to understand what this epidemic is and to try to have resources for those family members who are looking for that, and which I did not have. So usually when I tell the story, I remind folks that these resources are out there now. And that is really unique with that. And so I guess that's part of the story of sharing what what I experienced and what is available now but also the fact that human trafficking has become very sophisticated. It is not 
as social media now, when investigators like yourself look at this now, now it's, it's highly computerized. Now it's symbols. It's things that only human trafficking you know, clientele understand what symbols mean now. It could be a, just a simple things that will look so innocent or actually trafficking symbols that, that are more high-tech and need more specialization to understand that when you're trying to investigate this, that then my daughter's time was more open because of social media and, and, and technology at, at that time and when, when, when is it happening in her life. So if you don't mind me asking, just the mm -hmm. surrounding her murder, mm -hmm. who was this person to her or what, what happened? I did not even know she had somebody in her life at that time. So when this happened, it was like, I didn't know if she was seeing anybody. I did not know who this person was. But when it was all done, and one of the things I wanted to do for her is I wanted to see her apartment after. I, I guess we could call it, we call it, I want to see the crime scene. Because I needed that for my closure. Um... So we cleaned everything. As Ojibwe people, one of the things in the process for grieving and her funerals is we have to give everything away of hers, and that's what we do traditionally. Um, with the suspect's clothing and personal items in there, uh, the investigator from Brooklyn Park uh, was just an amazing investigator because he always kept me in the loop with the investigation. Um, and... Once we were able to clean out her apartment, he was like, what about the suspect's personal items? And, he's, and, I, and I said, I will. I said, well, his mother's asking for him. And I just said, can I call her? And I did. And she wasn't expecting it. I just called her up and I said, uh, my name is Monty Frank. I am Nada's father. And just could have heard a pin drop on the other end. And I just said, we have, we have lost both our children. And we have to learn how to live with this. And I do have all your son's items collected in the apartment. His name is not on the lease. And I said, I cleared it with her apartment that you can come in and, and pick his stuff up when you're ready to. And she could just say, you know, thanks. I don't know what I could even say. And I said, there's nothing to say. We both lost our children this day. When I hung up, I also know that as we know in public safety, when it's a murder-suicide, there are two different funerals that are going to happen. They're the victim's funeral and the perpetrator's funeral. And we know that those will feel and look very different. And I don't know what he ended up. I, I saw his obituary in, in, in the Star Tribune with that, and I just hope it was the best it could be for that family. But I knew I had sent my daughter traditionally on a traditional journey, 
and that was needed to be done. People say, well, wouldn't you want of justice, wouldn't you want of him tried in, in, a, in a court of law and, and go that way? And I'm like, it's done. He, he shot my daughter three times with an AR-15 rifle in her chest. He took the same rifle to, to put it underneath his chin and took care of the situation. It's done. But I will say for the trauma that I will never be like the Monty I was before her murder. Because I've had classmates who reached out and said, I have lost my child, but to something that maybe is more acceptable in life, traffic accident, something like that, not to murder. And when you bury your child, a part of you gets buried with her. And you know for you, you'll be forever changed. And I know that about myself. And that's what I have to live with the rest of my life. But if I can honor my daughter now when asked to tell the story, to say that when you hear human trafficking, don't think, oh, it's that type of family or this type of situation. It can happen to any family. If, if somebody's listening right now who's possibly might be human trafficking mm -hmm. or um, somebody who's actually doing the trafficking, what message would you send them? It isn't so much, I think, a message. It's when I'm asked or called, I make that, ref I always say, we, not, we now have resources that I didn't have. And again, that's the Bureau of Indian Affairs Murder and Missing Unit. It's a nationwide, you can go on their website. It's, they have a 24-7 have texting and phone service. As well as within Minnesota, we have the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Relatives with Judy at Rudy. It's also a resource to go to, and that's what I give families when I get asked this. And I tell them, this is a resource I did not have. But also, we know in public safety, we still really utilize the National Missing, you know, you know and the, the NICMIC. They are a, still a great resource for public safety to get the word on we have missing children. Because the one thing they don't do is no matter how much you call them, they take every time you call them as serious as the first time. And Joy, out of NICMIC, the headquarters, and I have been good friends since my daughter's human trafficking and her murder. And that's the thing I always tell her. Every time I called your agency, it was professional, and they took her next run as seriously as the first one and did everything they could to get her information out through posters and other things. And that's about the only resource we had back then to get it out. Now, in Minnesota, we have two other ones, so that's what I give out are the local resources, but also the National Missing and Exploited Children's Network is a great resource if it's a child. I... Uh was reading the Minnesota Task Force statistic. Uh, American Indian women and girls are seven times more likely to be murdered than their white counterparts. Um, obviously, 
there's something that we're doing as a community, as a society, where we are, uh, something is missing in our responses and reactions to these kind of situations. And I think, I don't know if that, (laughs) early in your story, you talked about that social worker who was like, I got to go home. I don't know if that's sort of related to this overall kind of systemic issue. Um, It kind of is. A lot of times for Indian country, we hear these similar stories about off-reservation human services, family services worker and, and, you know, large caseloads, implied biases is still out there. And even in nationwide, when when my daughter was murdered two years ago, at the same time, Gabby Gifford was also missing in Utah in the National Park, if you remember that situation. Being non-Native and being white, she got two weeks, 24-7 coverage with involvement with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. My daughter's life of 24 years got nine and a half minutes. Basically was the murder itself on national news and on, on the news and then identifying the names. Nine and a half minutes. So I kind of have a two-part question, and it kind of goes with what you had just asked. First off, I was wondering how long your daughter was trafficked for. And then secondly, if she talked about how she got into that, because... um, Nope, she didn't. Uh, Two years, human trafficked for two years, 14 to 16 years old. Okay. Yeah. But never talked about what happened in grave detail. All I can think of is she was on run. Uh, somebody approached her that had some bling, as we say in the world. She had no impulse control. So it was probably a lot of times it was her f- for survival, and that's what she had to do. I'll never know because she never would go into that grave detail. But I, I've learned from other advocates in this field and other trained, what they hear from other, other survivors. I was going to say I found in a couple, like being when I was working the street and coming mm-hmm. across some people that I could tell were obviously being sex trafficked or mm-hmm. human trafficked. Um, a lot of times it started with them being in a relationship with this person, mm-hmm. and then it turned to, all right, well, if you love me, you would do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it continued on it, that route. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about how not to confront somebody, I've learned through some of the trainings I've been to and stuff, and then also my own experience. When you start off kind of like, well, such and such is doing this to you and putting them as the bad guy, quote unquote, mm-hmm. they shut down because that, in their mind, that's who they love. You know, that's mm-hmm. their partner. They're not doing yeah. anything to me. It's not their fault. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, definitely it, taking it, a it, different we approach. Say they don't see themselves as the victim sometimes. Yep. Is there much training at Columbia Heights in regard to this, this specific topic of recognizing, you know, people who are being sex, sex trafficked and how to? I know we have the social workers on staff, but um, 
it's it's getting better at when i compared to like when i when when we started years ago um it, it wasn't touched on at all um but over time we we we've in like some of the training at the amm concert conference um there there that was some very good training but i have to tell you it's still i mean in many ways i think that um nationally we're still just scratching the surface yeah. and 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 now on the, at the state level i will say they they do seem to take this much more seriously and 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 like the the task force um uh, for the state is um has been in place for several years now and anoka county's been heavily involved in that and so I think at the state level, um, they're doing they're doing uh, they're doing much better than at the national level. Um, but it sounds like even at the national level, though, finally we're starting to get some traction. So over the next several years, um, I, I think it'll get better. But like you said, Monty, with tech now the way it is, um, I mean it really is uh, it is the wild wild west uh, uh, when it comes to technology and, and this type of criminal activity. And I think to also remember that. That awareness training needs to go from anybody on scene. Not, not only Columbia Heights Police Department, it's Columbia Heights Fire Department, and they do EMS, the same thing with that one, because you're all at the same scenes. And if one of you sees something that seems a little funky, they're going to talk to you and say, hey, investigator, what do you think? Something just doesn't seem right talking talking with this, with this patient or at a fire scene or a car accident, and the personnel, something doesn't seem right with this, and what do you think? And I think that's where... You know, it's more of really a general awareness over all responders. So they all have that information. And so, and so they might not feel they missed something that you saw. You know, it's kind of trying to be all in the same place, especially when you're in a, in a smaller suburb like Columbia Heights, as you really are a family here. And, when, and you know when bad things happen to any citizen or a visitor, you're all at the same scene. And you're all saying, and you're all there trying to preserve life and property. And if something's amiss here, there's nothing better when you're all given that same awareness training and you can all sit there and say, I know something's not right here. What do you think? And could this be the situation? Could it be a human trafficking patient? Because I remember in that training, this was a symbol I saw. They're acting this way. They're not making contact. They're giving us false information. They aren't being cooperative with us. And is that, could, could it be possibly a trigger that is there? And the biggest thing is, what do you say to them? that will open that door to say, yes, I am being human trafficked. Because a lot of traditional skills we learn to talk to people does not go into the area of this. It is, and that's when investigators tell me, and, and who specialize in human trafficking, it truly is a specialized skill that I've seen in more investigators in public safety, whether it's tribal law enforcement or non-tribal, but also even in the world of advocates. And a lot of times law enforcement has learned from tribal advocates or other off-reservation advocates who work in human trafficking about how to approach, how to dress, what to say or not say to get that door to open to see if this truly is a victim of human trafficking and that you are there to help them.
because that door stays shut because the fear of harm and death is so strong to the to a to a victim as my daughter was you know that they don't believe anything you say and when you learn the skills or the right words to say that will maybe crack that door open that's a very unique skill that very few folks have or are, are being taught these days because that is what's needed to get that door open to hopefully gain some trust to get him into a safer place. What's what's the worst way you can approach it? What 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 closes that door? You know, it's it's being because being confrontive. You know, because when you are traumatized to the fear, any uniform is a concern. I don't care if it's law enforcement, fire, fire, whatever it might be, uniforms. But yeah, there's certain intimidation factors. You know. How do you approach them? How do you stand? Because they have lived in fear of traumatic bodily injury or death. And they've learned that our mannerisms and things are what's feared. And again, there are many victims of human trafficking, and they're controlled by many different ways by the traffickers. So that's why this is really is a specialized skill. But luckily, we're seeing more training offered for a general awareness. So when you are at an emergency scene and something isn't sitting right with you, or maybe you see, you know, tattoos, maybe you see burn marks on somebody, which is a strange symbol, something will click in your mind going, this might be a victim of human trafficking. I guess I've seen some just... Like we have Starlight Motel, mm-hmm. young yeah. juvenile female with an older male, or yeah. Yeah. you pull somebody over and not make, like the passenger might be a female, yeah. appears to be a juvenile, not making eye contact, yeah. uh, timid, mm-hmm. constantly looking at the male that's on scene mm-hmm. with them, yeah. trying to, yeah. you know, make sure whatever they're saying they are mm-hmm. allowed to say, or just some of those little yeah. triggers. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. you said, it could be anything, but. The one thing I do hear a lot, though, in stories is when. You have that older with younger. And it seems like when any response agency is trying to talk to them, the older one will always talk for, I mean, I've heard that commonality where it's a older male, a younger female, and no matter what question, I don't care if it's a paramedic asking a question or whoever, the adult person always is the one who, who injects and answers the question on their behalf. And that's one thing I've seen. And... Uh, and in fact, there was one uh, television show that's a medical show that actually showed it really well. And it was, it was kind of the episode theme was human trafficking. And it showed that how that communication works with an older and younger and everything else. And luckily, in the, in the medical show, the doctor was probably trained in this area and then got the right people involved. Because they said every time she, he, she asked a question to this patient, the, 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 the guy was right there answering for her. And that's one of the common telltale signs. If I can say anything, that's probably what it is. You get a scene where, where the adult person talks constantly and, and, and does not allow the child or younger person to answer any questions. That was probably a common thing I've heard across many folks who are properly trained in this or an awareness level. Where it's like, yeah, they, they, I just can't, they, they won't let me, they, they won't let the person respond. Yeah. Yeah, I think the other thing that I can add on is 
nowadays, you know, kids got a cell phone on their own, oh, yeah. yep. and some parents don't have no idea what, mm-hmm. who they're talking to their kids or what they're doing and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's one of the challenges that the parents need to get involved their mm-hmm. kids phone and see what they're doing and stuff you know and, and good luck with that one because <laughs> the kids are more crafty with their phones than us adults are you know more sophisticated. that's more and, trainings for us right <laughs> and the only thing i can say is that you know when my kids had cell phones luckily we could sh- we could shut them off we had the parental extra guidance to it and that was kind of unique wise because we can when we could see what they're going to yeah you know, but also when we could we could we could close we could we could make it into a brick basically. Yeah. So we thought that was pretty at that time was pretty yeah. nice because we know they're out there like oh, yeah. boop and you go dad <laughs> hey ten o'clock you know <laughs> yeah. that thing. But we had that. But you know the technologies out there are so much out there that you could spend your entire 10, 12 hour shift just trying to keep on top of what's being out there in social media. And it make your head spin because you could have you, you could have whole fusion center of folks, and you still may only brush the surface of it. And you're one investigator trying to solve multiple crimes here in Columbia Heights and, and be the best service for all your citizens here. Yeah. And so it's just it's just what what the reality is with that. But think if you were a caregiver, a foster home parent, a grandparent raising your grandkids. You know, you have the training to try to keep top of this, but you think of a, of a normal caregiver, they don't, because our, our, our young people are very wise with everything those pieces of technology that they care for them can do. Yes. And, and they can hide things, because that's one thing we learned, that there's false, fake you know, apps fake and, apps that, yeah. are, that are actually where they hide things at. And again, how would a caregiver know? Yeah. You know, but the biggest thing is, I guess I would say, is that they know now that you are here as an investigator. They know that Columbia Heights Police Department is committed to this. They know that Anoka County does have a task force. And I would think that if any citizen of Columbia Heights would have a concern, that they should feel comfortable giving you a call and saying, I, I've seen this in my neighborhood I'm wondering about this because I'm concerned for my neighbors. I know my community, something isn't right here. And knowing they can come to you and feel that it is of value and will not be looked at as whatever because they are trying to make this city that you patrol and keep safe as they remember it. Definitely, and we'd hope if anybody was listening that noticed something off that they wanted to report, that they mm-hmm. report it to mm-hmm. the police department 911 mm-hmm. right away um, and so we can start yeah. investigating. And it could save yeah. people, multiple yeah. people. And and we know, unfortunately, with speaking of cell phones, we know people like to take videos and take pictures. And you surprisingly, those are very valuable for, for trained eyes of a patrol officer with Columbia Heights Police Department. Lenny, the police chief, you as investigator to say, hey, I was out in my yard, here's a picture, here's a video that doesn't seem right. And that's great too because we, it's almost like it's becoming more common to use those now to record something that isn't right or doesn't seem right. And they won't be worrying about being criticized for whatever because it's like, no, I just took this and I couldn't figure any other way I could think of to try to show you what I, what I saw. Yeah, definitely. Monty, I wanted to close out by just asking you so much of uh, 
we're talking about Nada and the the story. Mm-hmm. So much of it is about trauma and is in a negative context. Uh, I wondered if you could share a quick story or memory um, that kind of captures her personality that's more positive outside of the context that we've been talking about. Well, again, I think the most positive thing besides the 20-year-old is watching her graduate because that was her own strength. That was nothing that no other adult pressured her to do. That was her own strong, strong, passionate self to do this for everything she survived, to do this on her own and accomplish it is one of those positive things that I remember because a lot of human trafficking victims do not have the resilience afterwards to move on and to know what normal is. And and she did with that amazing ability to do something for herself because she wanted to do it for herself. Uh, Monty, I can't thank you enough for, for coming down here. Well, it, it, it's an honor to, to be asked for, for this type of, of podcast uh, because, as Chief Austin said, we have tried this before, but unfortunately Mother Nature threw us a few curveballs with some heavy blizzard-like conditions, so it uh, didn't happen. But actually— Like our fourth attempt? I think we're at the third attempt for doing this. And actually, you know, um, as an Ojibwe person, we're storytellers. And we always say— as Native people, things happen for a reason. And it's really a very interesting time because actually Monday would have been my daughter's 26th birthday. She uh, being murdered two years ago now. So it's kind of like maybe this is meant to be at this time, not only to remember her for, for what her life could have been, but also to be asked by a fellow responder who I've known for many years to be gifted by asking to tell the story today. I want to thank our co-host, Investigator Tabitha Wood, Officer Mo Farah, Chief Lenny Austin, Will Rotler on sound, and our special guest, Monty Franck. And I'm Ben Sandell. Thank you all for listening. Mo, do you want to do the, the end Outro. line? This is the Columbia Heights Police Department roll call signing off. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Martin, thanks so much. No, no. It was, it was an honor to be down here and, and just tell a story and, yeah. yeah. That's what it is. So, yeah.